This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Conduct legal research from any device, anytime, anywhere, even offline with the award-winning Westlaw Next iPad app. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Associates, you think the partners drive you nuts, but is there a chance you're bothering them as well? I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me are Ida Abbott, a consultant who helps employers manage, retain, and advance legal talent, Jennifer Bluestein, Director of Attorney Professional Development at Greenberg Traurig, and Mark Herman, the Chief Counsel of Litigation and the Chief Compliance Officer at Aon. He also wrote the book, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law. I have a question for all of you, and Ida, let's start with you. When you're speaking with law firm partners about associate behavior, is there a common issue that comes up repeatedly and and not in a good way? Well, there are occasionally some complaints or some criticisms. Um, One uh, that I've heard that really surprised me was the number of associates who come in to discuss an assignment and don't bring anything to write on, whether it's paper or, or the tablet or something. And that's always a surprise. Another is an associate's expectation that they're going to be given all the information, all the answers, and and that basically they have to just go uh, do a little research and it will all come together uh, without having to dig around on their own. Jennifer, let's Mm -hmm. have you talk about that question next. And I I wanted to mention something, if you don't mind. when we were discussing this earlier, you had talked about how associates should bring uh, a pad of paper and something to write with every time, everywhere they go while they're working, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Can you talk about that a bit for me? Sure. I think you just never know when you're going to be interrupted, pulled into something, distracted by something. And, I mean, I see it with our team assistant. She may come in for a quick question, but if my phone rings and I need her help with something, she's writing something down. So I have sticky pads on my desk facing the people who sit in my chair uh, because there aren't enough people walking around with paper at all times. So it's not just a first-year associate kind of thing. It's just if you leave your desk, chances are you're going to get detoured, whether it's because you decide you want a cup of tea and you run into a partner you're working with on a matter or because you decide to stop by somebody else's office with a quick question. It's just very helpful to always be prepared. It's a good habit to do that no matter what age or or experience level you're at, because even if you're um, out at lunch and you meet someone or at a cocktail party and they have information that uh, that they can give you or it's something you want to follow up with with them, to have something available to write on to make a note to yourself is really important. So Jennifer's point about always having something to write on I think is a really good suggestion. You'd think that carry a pencil would be the most basic advice that you could possibly give everybody, but I'm going to suggest that there's something that's even more basic than that. Woody Allen said that 80% of success in life is just showing up. I'd say that 80% of success in law is just doing it, just doing it, because I think the fundamental thing that absolutely drives partners crazy is you ask somebody to get something done on Monday and you call them on Monday and they say, oops, I forgot about it, sorry. And then everybody is toast, everybody is dead. So if you are asked to do something, do it. 
do it. Of course, that's the first best alternative. The second best alternative is to explain. I'm not going to explain a week before. I won't be able to get it done on Monday. Please make alternative plans, because at least that way the ball has not been dropped come Monday, right? But just getting things done when they are supposed to be done is hugely important. Eighty percent of success in law is just like diligence and responsibility, not necessarily quality. Well, that issue of not meeting a deadline, Mark, do you have a sense of what's that about? Is it because the the associate forgets or because they extend themselves? I think it's a collection of different things, but it's the key is that it's the cardinal sin. That is, it just once, if a brief is due on a certain day and it turns out the ball has been dropped and no work has been done and it is critically important that we have rolled the ball before then, it is very likely the partner will never again come back to you for help because if I can't trust you to get it done or at least tell me you're not doing it, you just can't be in my life. Right, the law is just too filled with people who are compulsive and deadlines that are too important. And whether it's, oh, I'll just take an extension or it doesn't matter or I didn't make a list so I forgot, I really would have done it if only I had remembered, what the excuse is doesn't really matter. It's just it has to happen, and if it doesn't happen, you have to tell me with enough time in advance that I can recover that it isn't happening. Well, and do you find, too, that for young lawyers, they may not be the very best lawyer because they're just getting started, but they can impress people by always meeting the deadlines and maybe even meeting the deadline a day early? I understand being young or being inexperienced. I cannot understand saying I'm going to have it on Monday and not getting it done on Monday, except, you know, under the most extreme circumstances, you know, you know plane didn't get me home, death in the family, severe illness, you know, I mean, if there's a real reason. But even then, call and tell me it's not getting done. Let me know that it's not getting done. But there's a difference between inexperience and irresponsibility. You can forgive inexperience. That solves itself over time. You can't forgive irresponsibility. Although, to be fair, Mark, I think we tend to, as we get older, forget how brutal that first year of practice is. It is, I think, incredibly overwhelming. When I was a first-year associate, I didn't have a BlackBerry. We barely had, we barely had email. You know, <laughs> my first your life, years Your life was probably a lot easier. Easier and harder, different. Yeah. I had to be physically in the office, but I didn't have to multitask as much because if I was in the office, I was there to work. Now you have this push and pull of, gee, I have my kid's soccer game, can I turn this off for an hour? Can I be present in what I'm doing outside of work? Am I going to drop a ball because of that? Am I going to miss an email that says, oh, I need it tomorrow rather than Tuesday? And so I think sometimes just the influx of emails. I found an email in my box this morning. It wasn't terribly urgent or anything, but it had come in yesterday, and I didn't see it. How does that happen? It, it happens. And I think part of it is, is how you recover and how you have a check on yourself every night to kind of do that final look-through of all your deadlines, everything on your to-do list, to make sure that really nothing falls through the cracks. Oh, sure. But I think, I think what Mark's talking about, and I agree with you, and I think it is overwhelming and it's, it's very difficult, and some of the problems that associates have is that partners give them phony deadlines. Um, they don't really mean it. They wait till the last minute to assign something or it sits on their desk for weeks before they turn it around and give it to you and say, I need it tomorrow. But that being said, the issue of responsibility is critical. 
um, because you, if you're working in a firm and you don't turn something in on time or you don't let people know it's going to be late, it's hard to imagine anybody uh, sticking, you know, be, being kept around very long if, they, if you can't rely on them. And but I, let, me, let me say a word in defense of partners. That is, it is true that partners sometimes give phony deadlines, but partners weren't born that way. They weren't born given phony deadlines. Partners were made insane by the passage of events, right? It's not that the current associate is no good. It's, the, it's that the associate seven years ago said they'd get it to me on Monday, and they didn't, and I was a dead man. And the associate from three years ago said they'd get it to me on Monday, and they didn't, and I was a dead man. And I am not going to happen, let that happen with the new person who's here sitting in my office who says he's going to get it to on Monday, and he, even though he might be a responsible person, has the same look of the, he's haunted by the ghosts of incompetence past. And <laughs> I'm not going to tell him I want it on Monday. I'm going to tell him I need it the Wednesday before because I refuse to be dead again, right? Partners are driven insane by what happened to them before. I think that's why you get the phony deadlines. Well, except an associate sitting there. Some of that, sometimes it, it's for that reason. Um, you know, and, I'm, and it's too bad that partners develop bad habits based on bad experience, but an awful lot of times partners are also the ones creating their own messes, and um, the associate, you know, rightly or wrongly is looking at it and saying, you know, your incompetence or your past experience shouldn't be my problem. I need to manage my own work and, um, you know, and be honest with me. Now, the first couple of times we work together as a partner, you may have to pay a little closer attention to me, but on the associate side, if I'm told Wednesday, I totally agree with you, regardless of how unreasonable it is, it needs to be done on Wednesday. It's just that what you hope happens, in spite of all the insanity and pressure and, and um, influx of, of messages, is that the two of you can have a conversation and maybe even develop a relationship where you can talk about it and you won't even get to that point if, as a partner, you are totally unreasonable or as an associate, you let me down. Um, that, that's right, and I think you develop that relationship over time. That is, yeah. a partner may give a phony deadline the first time, and the work comes in on time and right, and the partner goes, ah, maybe not like that clown from seven years ago. And then right. you give another phony deadline, and you get things on time and right, and you go, oh, a trustworthy person. And then eventually you get to the point where you're telling associates, here's a small little matter. You can handle it essentially on your own. Here's the rule. Don't commit malpractice without seeing me first. Otherwise, this case is yours, right? And at that point, you've earned the person's trust. But the key is the first time around, the partner is probably looking at you with some suspicion because the partner doesn't remember all of the good experiences he had in the past. He only remembers the times he's been screwed to the wall, and he's hedging against that, rightly or wrongly. So I, what it sounds like you're saying is that in the best situation, you work for a partner who respects you, and you respect him or her, and you take them at their worst. It shouldn't be the best situation. That should be the norm. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, the norm doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so I guess we, you know, I guess we call it ideal. Um, but, you know, I mean, to make things work, the best teams, and every time you've got two people working together, we we'll call it a team, um, the best teams work when people can communicate and rely on each other. I have another question for you. If you're working for a partner who you don't know well, 
how should you go about asking that person questions about the assignment? And maybe you should just ask the partner, how do you like to be approached about work questions? What, what do you think, Ida? What a refreshing idea. Why not? You know, mm-hmm. um, if you're working with somebody for the first time, you should be able to, to uh, you know, ask some of those questions. If you're dealing with somebody, well, first of all, you have to be careful about the questions you ask. You know, if you sound totally naive, like you have no idea what you're doing, this partner's already going to be suspicious and nervous about having you do the work. So you have to know how to ask questions in a way that sounds professional and, you know, even saying something like, how do you, you know, how would you like me to check in with you? Do you want me to check in? Do you want me to give you an, a periodic update if it's something that's going to take a while? Do you like me to leave email messages, or would you rather, you know, if it's important, give you a phone call? Asking a few questions is a, is a good way to find that out, but, you know, there's a fine line, and you need to have a little, you have to be observant and pay attention to the partner's reactions. If you are working with somebody who brushes off every question like you were a total moron, you know, you still have to get the information you need, but you may want to talk to the partner's assistant or secretary if there is one or somebody who's worked with them uh, before. But it's better to ask the questions and then perform up to expectations than to walk out of there without a clue uh, and, and add to your own strain and stress and run the risk of doing something uh, that's not going to be up to snuff. Jennifer, what do you think? You know, I recently was talking to a law firm partner who was saying that there was a discussion that she was involved in recently about a junior associate and whether he asked too many questions. And she was really offended by the discussion. And she said, that there's, we always say there's no such thing as too many questions, so why is it a problem? If he's asking questions, he should be. And, and she was very adamant about it. And it made me curious. And I said, well, what was the complaint within it, – it can't just be that he's asking questions. It's too frequent. It's stupid questions. What's the problem? And she said, well, they seem to feel that he was just kind of all over the board, and he came in all the time with different questions. And that, to me, says that the individual wasn't thinking things through to come in with well-thought-out questions that kind of one followed the other logically. It was as if the associate got one question answered, went back to his desk, immediately realized that that answer led to a different question. And it just showed kind of how disjointed or or unfocused he was or that he didn't get the assignment. So I think starting out with those questions, how do you like to be communicated with, is very important. And we advise junior associates to do that. We actually give them a checklist of here are all the questions you should get answered when you take an assignment. When you start working with somebody, here's a sheet of paper that you take with you. And we talk about spoon feeding. But they find it really helpful. Some of them are offended that we're um, condescending to them, but generally they like it. And that really helps guide the conversation. But that's no substitute for thinking deeply about the assignment as a whole before you even start the research or put pen to paper. So I think it's, it's give and take. And at the same time, we also have to keep in mind we, as more senior experienced people, don't necessarily think the thing out before we assign it out. So if we do a good job explaining, we teach a supervisory skills class, we say talk about the goal, talk about the big picture, talk about what that work is going to be used for. 
If we're doing a really good job in assigning work, then I think it's going to increase the likelihood of success of the people taking the assignments. So I think it's, it's more mutual than we care to think about. That last point is really the key, isn't it, that if a partner is getting ready to take a deposition, the partner spends whatever, two, three, four days getting ready to take the deposition. If a partner is getting ready to argue an appeal, the partner spends whatever, two, three days getting ready, reading cases, thinking about the structure, the organization, what has to be said. If a partner is assigning a legal research project, the partner, it flips into his head that he needs some legal research. He picks up the phone. He asks the associate to come down the hall, and then the partner absolutely butchers the giving of the assignment because he didn't take two minutes to reflect on what the person receiving the assignment has to know on background and how the information should best be conveyed and what the project really is, right? So the partner butchers the giving of the assignment, and any fair partner ought to realize that follow-up questions that clarify the assignment are not disrespectful or wrong. It is just because the assignment is probably not being explained properly because the partner gave no thought to how to explain the assignment. Right, right. And we see that. I mean, I can tell you where I saw it when I was a junior associate most vividly was the first time I was asked to do a deposition outline. If you really want to do a proper deposition outline, you have to understand, you have to pull the complaint and understand what makes the prima facie case, what's the evidence that's going to be um, required for summary judgment or not required, what are we looking for to get out of this deposition? And if you're just told to go do a deposition outline, a first-year associate doesn't always know, hey, you got to pull the complaint and see what the causes of action are. What are the allegations? What are we trying to prove or disprove? That never happened in my first year when I was asked to do a deposition outline. It wasn't until I went to a NIDA program in my firm that I started thinking about how does discovery and a deposition actually relate to what you're trying to prove or disprove in that summary judgment brief. Okay. Let's switch gears a bit. Ida, for someone who's never worked in an office before they start an associate position, what are some important things they need to know? How to listen, how to observe, how to work with staff. I would probably put that, you know, at the, close to the top, um, how to work with all the people you're going to be working with um, to pay attention to not just yourself but uh, to them and how they operate. A lot of times you walk in there, you're scared, you're looking around, and this is an alien land. And like anything else, you walk in thinking that you're prepared, feeling in your gut that you're not, and you're terrified. And um, the best way to kind of get the lay of the land is to pay attention to it and to see what's going on and and how things work. Um, And a lot of the questions that you need to have answered are basically about how things work. How do you get something done? Where's the equipment that you need, the technology that you need? Who are the people to call? And, you know, the kind of the nuts and bolts that should be reviewed in any orientation but don't necessarily get covered. And so I think that's a big part of it. Uh, and I think, that, you know, one of the things that, that we were talking about at the very beginning, the whole notion of being, being responsible, um, and that means being responsible to other people, the people you're going to be working with and the people who are going to depend on you, it should be right up there at the top as well. And, Mark, what do you think? I think the thing that associates frequently don't understand when they come into an office, the, the most important thing 
is that a draft is not a draft. When a partner says prepare a draft of something, you don't prepare some sort of crappy, unacceptable work product because, after all, it's only a draft and it's going to get improved over time. And so you can put something that you know is not your best work on the partner's desk because, after all, it's only a draft. I think what associates don't understand is that there's no such thing as a draft. A draft means you, put, you fire off every last neuron in your brain to produce the absolute best quality work that you can, and that then goes to the partner's desk. So if it is absolutely perfect, you stamp a draft in the, in the corner because you only call it a draft. The partner has to give input. But you are actually producing your absolute finest work product. And the reason you're doing that is because whether you like it or not, the partner is looking at what you produced and is assessing you based on it. And if you give a crappy draft and put it on somebody's desk, their reaction is going to be, this person is not very good. I, it's going to be a, a real training project to make the person good, I think I'd rather work with other associates, which is exactly the wrong reputation to have within a law firm. So when you produce a draft, produce the very best draft that you can produce so the partner gets it and thinks, ah, this person is somebody I want to hold close to me, a competent person who I want to use on all of my matters. And that's the way you create a reputation. So don't be deceived by the word draft. I think that's a deceptive term for people to use. You know, Mark, you, you brought to mind something that always strikes me as a surprise is when I hear from associates, when someone says, you know, remember you're always being assessed. You're always being judged by the people around you who observe you and work with you. And a lot of times I'm surprised, I hear from associates, well, what is, you know, the, how should, why should they judge me? They don't know me, and you know they don't. They uh, should look at the quality of my work and the person I am, and they can't tell that just by observing me or listening to me. And I find it uh, kind of interesting that we've got uh, you know professionals coming into uh, law firms who don't realize that everything they do is observed by others, and sometimes, many times, those others really count in terms of the opportunities that they're going to get the work experiences that are going to come their way, um, and how important it is, uh, you know, to recognize that you're not in a bubble and the quality of your work product is not the only thing that matters. And it's entirely fair that partners do that. That is, that is sure. part of their job. They will be asked to evaluate people. Part of what they'll be asked to evaluate is personal presence and how do they speak and quickness of foot. And, you know, is this person likely to be able to interact well with clients? There are a million different questions that partners have to answer about the associates, and the only way to answer them is to observe. That's part of the job. It's also how you give feedback, to call somebody into your office and say, you, you know, three martinis at lunch and the way you were acting afterwards is a little wrong. Try to get it under control next time or whatever the feedback is. But you get that by observing people, and that's how you give constructive criticism, too. Well, speaking of the three martinis, um, let's talk a little bit about business development with young lawyers or um, attempts to get business development. Mark, are there some common uh, faux pas you see with associates in, in the business development area? I think the most common faux pas, at least at large law firms, is that associates don't attempt business development. They think 
I am in a big law firm that only handles very big transactions or litigation matters. Nobody is going to come to a second, third, fourth, fifth-year associate with a very large case, and so therefore it is not worth the effort. I won't do it. Instead of thinking, this is a race that will be won by the turtle. It is a long race that extends over a period of decades, and the way to start developing business is by starting it today. And that means staying gently in touch with your friends and colleagues and associates, not because you're developing business, but because you're a human being and it is nice to do that, and remembering just to stay in touch with people, see how they're doing, tell them things they might need to know, even lunch with them occasionally. And in addition, at a very early stage, beginning to develop a reputation. And if that means teaching CLE courses or writing a short article about a brief that you got out the door last week and it forced you to think about an issue and you came up with an approach to the issue that nobody had really written about in the cases, and so you take that idea and you put it into a publication. That publication will not win you a client. But 20 years from now, when you've written one article a year for each of the last 20 years and you have a list of publications as long as your arm, you will walk into a beauty contest and say, here are my publications, and people will be impressed. So start now because it's a journey that is won by the person with the most perseverance, really. Jennifer, what do you think? I think we have to really think about how client service blends into client development because we have um, a very robust client development training program and tools that we give to associates. And one of the things we get them to understand is your first client when you walk in the door is every attorney you're working with in the firm. And so that's client development. It starts internally. It, it extends externally. Um, but there's a path to it, and we try and model those behaviors every step of the way. And that somehow makes it easier for them, the idea of – you know, bringing on a new client like Aon is really scary to them, and they think they can't do it. And so showing them a path that's a reasonable is something that makes it achievable and not so scary. And then the other thing that I try and talk about with associates is you would be amazed what happens to your friends from law school along the way, where they end up, where they go. And keeping in touch and being helpful, not just being helpful on a particular litigation matter, but being a resource for them. Being a friend is part of what keeps you in touch and puts you and your firm out there years from now where you're really in a position to have some unique offering to them that's helpful. So what I see from associates is they're afraid to do that because they think they're selling something. And I say, look, if you had a friend who needed a new nanny, and you knew a nanny, would you help them? Well, yeah, I'd help them. Like, okay. So if you see a friend who's at a company that's getting sued left and right, and they're not happy with their legal counsel because they're not very responsive or they're in a different time zone, wouldn't you want to help them? Well, yeah, but that's different. It's not different because oftentimes what you see is that there is something you, your firm, your personality style offers that's different from what they already have. And, and if you build those relationships, you start hearing that. So I see client development as very doable as opposed to a, a challenge, a grind that they have to just get used to. It's interesting to me that the young lawyers are, as you said, afraid that they'd be selling something. As the profession has changed so much, they weren't a part of it 
when you didn't have to sell that. That's intriguing to me. But, but you, they didn't go to law school to sell. If they wanted to be salespeople, they would have done something else. That's that kind of cognitive dissonance a lot of them uh-huh. have. It's the same with partners. Sure. Partners don't like to don't like to think of what they're doing as selling either. Right, but they were at the firm at the time when you didn't have to sell. They weren't allowed to. Exactly. <laughs> well, it depends. When I, when I started in the middle, you know, in the dark ages, um, it was illegal. You mean against the law in the 1970s? I was thinking just against the practice, which was true even in the 1980s, where people <laughs> yeah, were being absolutely. told, don't, don't worry about generating business. Business always comes into this place. We always have plenty to do. And if you're, you're a good lawyer. Stick, keep your nose to the grindstone and get right. the stuff done, and that's your job. We really don't want you to waste time developing business. And, I mean, I heard those words spoken in the, right. even, even through the early 1990s. But, you know, what's interesting is also, and, and this is a failure that I see a lot, is associates who don't take advantage of opportunities that come their way. And there are opportunities. You know, even being invited, your firm takes a table, buys a table at a conference or a bar meeting or something like that. And either the associate says they're going to go and then they turn it down or they don't want to go because it takes them away from billable work and they think all that matters is sitting behind their desk and doing the work and getting out there and being known and being visible and going to that luncheon and making sure that you sit next to a partner if there is one uh, at the table or somebody or that yeah. you make it. You a want to avoid the bum tables, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, what you want to do is is use that opportunity to make some connections and to do some networking and, and to build relationships so that it's not just who you know, but it's who knows you or the ability to, to participate in a, uh, some outside organization and to take a leadership role where you're going to become visible and have a reputation as a leader. Um, there are a lot of opportunities that either come your way that associates turn down or that, that are there for the taking if you show a little initiative and recognize that it's important to do it. Yeah, and it's hard, for, especially for associates who are under such uh, pressure to bill hours, and who are mostly introverts to begin with. And so the idea of, you know, going to a luncheon is not going to be their favorite uh, exercise. But looking for ways that you get out there and build relationships and get uh, to know people and get known as somebody who's competent and, and shows some initiative and leadership. And to be fair, I just want to point out, I am seeing a lot of that initiative in the law school students and graduates of the last few years. I was at the ABA meeting the last several days, and there were law students and new grads everywhere at every program I went to, and they were going up and introducing themselves to people, and they were talking about they had their elevator pitch. These were driven, focused people, and I think maybe the economic difficulty that they've had in securing jobs will make them that much more successful later on because they have no fear now. They've got to get right right mm-hmm. out there and brand themselves or whatever you want to call it these days to get their job, and that's going to help them and serve them really well. So I'm actually really excited about the leadership and the confidence I'm seeing in our junior associates. They're really, and when I say our, I mean our country. I think they're a really great driven group. That's an interesting point. I think that's everything I have. I want to thank you all so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. 
This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, the legal research platform chosen by over 40,000 legal organizations for the tradition of editorial excellence combined with the most advanced technology. Learn more at westlawnext.com.